0: So because what were you called?
1: We were called the Hagwoods Trust, uh-huh. and people don't really know what a hag is. What is a hag? <laughs> a hag is a, a cut stand of holly. It's also uh, a foothold in a boggy bit. Okay. And it comes from the Norse, I think, originally. Anyway, people call it hag, haggy, haggers. Hague and so we thought, okay, well let's Wood be Meadow free. Trust. Let's be the Wood Meadow Trust and then our sort of writing is on the team. We actually changed. When we started out, we were trying to we were raising tomorrow's ancient woodland. That was our original goal.
0: Well, it's the Chinese proverb, isn't it? What's the what's the best time to plant a a tree? It's the twenty years ago. Yeah. What's the second yeah. best time to plant a tree? Now. Now.
1: Yeah. Well, we looked around us, and we saw all these plantations full of brambles and nettles and um, conifers and everything. And we decided we wanted to make a different kind of a wood. Sure. Well, so let's head on it inside.
0: It. Let's get away from that minibus that has come to pick up the, the slow worm and grass snake-obsessed children. <laughs> Hello, all. David Oakes here, and welcome to the second of three trees of crowds devoted to a triumvirate of wildflower women. Last week we spoke to ethnobotanist Jenny Martin, and as you just heard, this week I'm talking to Rosalind Forbes-Adam, the founder and project leader of the Wood Meadow Trust in York. If you've ever thought, hey, I want to grow a forest, and let's admit it, who hasn't, this is the episode for you. Recorded back in August of last year, Ros and I touch on a host of the issues that one faces when confronted with a field and with limited know-how of what to do next – the hopes of the Woodmeadow Trust are to transform an old arable field into a thriving woodland ecosystem. And as far as Ros is concerned, if you get the plants right, everything else will follow. It is a field of dreams. Plant it, and they will come. Anyway, enough from me. This is Trees A Crowd, and this is Rosalind Forbes Adam of the Woodmeadow Trust.
1: In the depth of the forest and all over the pride of the greenwood there. Oh, his branches, the ivy, her mantle through when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.
0: So, when did you start the the project? How long has it been in existence?
1: We started in 2012. We had the idea to. My, uh, my husband turned to me and said, "Do you want to make a wood?" And I thought, "Oh, that's a really." <laughs> enticing idea about how on earth do you do it? The
0: most romantic gesture a man can make, I think.
1: (laughs) It's pretty good, isn't it? So, uh, leap of faith, actually, because he doesn't usually like me doing projects because I get quite stuck in when I do. So, actually, he's probably regretting it, but (laughs) here we are. And and so I didn't really know what I was doing. I was a keen gardener, and I laid out a couple of gardens. But I hadn't actually made a wood or a meadow, and I really didn't have any idea how to do it. So I got together with a conservation consultant, Tango Fawcett, and a horticulturalist called Lynn Hawthorne, and we put our heads together and Of course her name's Hawthorne. It would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And um, we put our heads together and thought, what's the best way? So we ended up with this 25-acre space, which had been a barley field, Mm -hmm. last crop taken off in 2012, deciding to, Make a stale seed bed over the whole thing. So we plowed it, harrowed it, rolled it, and then we let it grow. We let the seed bank germinate.
0: And we're talking just grasses, these clover and everything well, else developing in there? Well, there was
1: a lot of thistle, and there was a lot of willow, and there were sort of rank grass, cooch, and all that kind of thing that we didn't really want to allow to get stuck in in the first place. Uh-huh. We know that in the end, of course it'll come in because yeah. these things blow around like video but initially we wanted to make sure that the um, fine grasses and the wildflowers had a chance to compete sure so we killed off all the rubbish and then we sowed our seed and we put down this end it's uh, some of the topsoil had top already been taken off mm-hmm. so we put um, wet seed wet meadow seed MG4 because it's quite often inundated in the winter. And then we put Mg five, dry meadow seed, and the rest of it. We've got very sandy soil.
0: And you source that from elsewhere in the country that hasn't been corrupted slash farmed to a wow. life?
1: It's a tricky thing and since two thousand and twelve I've learnt an awful lot about seed, a huge amount by trial and error, because the first seed we had, a lot of botanists came and said Oh my goodness me you didn't get that bird's foot trefoil seed from round here mm. that is not a north yorkshire local color yeah so i thought oh dear we've made <laughs> a hash there picking
0: them all up one by one
1: and that was sadly just beyond us so and then the napweed is very strange because it comes up and does incredibly well and then it finishes flowering within a nanosecond and suddenly it's all gone black so i think that's a Special selection, probably that grew very fast, it was bred to grow very fast, Um, by some for for farmers, you know, because things have been selected over the years and it's hard to know what you get in your seed mix. So I think we had a few somewhat dodgy ones. There are one or two seed merchants who are particularly reputable. Mm -hmm. Dare I say, Emors Gate are probably pretty good.
0: There's a shout out.
1: But actually, even better could be if you can get it. Locally sourced seed from a really good meadow, but I have to say that's uh, also a, a precarious choice because you never know what's been there before which either. seeds really have although that meadow might have all those species in it, whether those seeds are actually in your mix and how much weed is also there's a bit there's a, a big sort of movement
0: at the moment about native species and bringing in trees or bushes shrubs, flowers whatever from elsewhere in the in the world, even and accidentally bringing in diseases you don't want to do it's something that people don't really think about people think there's a flower that they would like and they don't yeah, think about the responsibility yeah, yeah. of making sure that it is locally sourced and therefore doesn't have any issues there's an interesting book uh, I can't remember his surname Dan I want to call him Spearly, I'll double check that but he's written a book about uh, invasive species oh, coming yeah, in, yeah. which is a very fascinating read
1: yes yeah well we are incredibly lucky in this country we've got cabby -hmm. Who do an amazing amount of work trying to stop oak processionary moth and all these things coming in? And we're incredibly sophisticated compared to other countries. But unfortunately, we have let in unwittingly an awful lot of dodgy stuff. So, you know, we're paying the price for it by having to try and.
0: So, um, before we go on more about the Woodmeadow Trust, what's your background personally? Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Kent, um, and my local woodlands were um, chestnut really chestnut woods with bluebells and primroses and things in Kent and I used to garden with my father dip the leeks and things So I was always I was had an uh, instinctive enjoyment in mud and getting out on the outside <laughs> and being in nature um, but I didn't know a lot about it I wasn't very well informed at all So you
0: didn't go into working in the natural world? So
1: I didn't go into that at all. I went to, um, I I did English and history at university and then I Everyone did English at
0: university. This is the common ground of everyone I interview. I'm going, (laughs) you run that organisation, you're an environmentalist over there, you're a taxidermist. What did you study? English (laughs) literature. There you go.
1: So, which I loved. And then I worked in the theatre, at the Open Air Theatre in Regent's Park. Worked there? Which was fantastic, because it was like a great sort of project place. Were you, who were you there with? Ian?
0: Um, no, so I was there more recently. I was there in 2013. All right. Uh, so Tim Sheeder had taken over, uh-huh. and I played Mr Darcy.
1: Oh. In a
0: lovely version of Pride and Prejudice. With fantastic. With all, all those trees along the back, providing yeah. the backdrop of the set, which was just...
1: Yeah, uh, it's a great place, isn't it? Yeah. Magical. I, I loved my years there. I loved being involved in the whole the project, the whole thing of you know in the beginning of the season and i think it definitely gave me a taste for seasonal work mm-hmm. in appreciating the seasons you know the start and great crescendo like here we have the meadow when it's in full flower and then you fall in and start all over again for the next year but i used to enjoy i often had to go and um, put people's ashes out oh god <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> love well a few people love the open air theatre used to have to go and scatter their ashes and we are desperately trying to find a bush, because actually, (laughs) as you know, the stage is not... No, it's not very ...the most beautiful green grass. No, not at all. (laughs) Great years, great place, the Open Air Theatre. And then I got married, and then after all I was at the National for a little bit, and then I came up here to um, Yorkshire, and started gardening and having children and doing all that kind of thing. And then in 2012 I started this project.
0: So we're looking... What it? What is the objective of the Wood Meadow Trust? Is it to make a wood? Is it to make a meadow? Is it to make a, a meadow full yeah. of trees? Is it to make? Well, a
1: when we started out, our ambition was well, there were two things. We, we, we thought that all our children are getting completely habituated to a very downgraded landscape, mm-hmm. and we wanted our everyone to be familiar with their wildflowers and what our countryside would normally look like. So would traditionally have looked like. We, were, we're not, we weren't after charismatic, amazing species. We were just after the run of the mill, generals, you know, lots of insects, and voles, and birds, and mm-hmm. just a community. We wanted to, to make a space that would provide uh, Stimuli. A, good, a good base for wildlife to be able to come. Mm-hmm. And we thought if we provided the plants, then everything else would follow. So we're a kind of bottom up pyramid. we mm-hmm. We're after rather than being a trophic cascade sort of you know which is directed by the top predators. Sure. And then the idea is that everything else will get itself Line organized in the right numbers and in the right way. Mm-hmm. O- obviously here it's 25 acres we you know we're not we're not about predators. I guess our biggest predator is probably a stoat um, who will know, eat the voles and the snakes.
0: If you were lucky. Yeah,
1: maybe in time. Maybe in time. We we haven't I don't think we've got any badges at the moment. Okay. We have got deer fencing and rabbit fencing around because we've got a lot of deer and a lot of rabbits and in order to give the trees a chance to grow, we reckoned we would pretty much had to fence it. Sure. Actually in retrospect, possibly we could have just um, instead of doing fencing we could have planted a lot of extra trees or a number of extra trees and just for Allowed wastage,
0: as it were. Well, I'm looking around. I can. I mean, there are so many trees. I mean, they're they're young. They're growing, but there must be, I don't know, five hundred trees.
1: Five uh, thousand. It's sort of between nine and ten thousand trees. There you go. Nine. We planted. We had about our our planting thing was sixteen hundred per acre. So we had a grant from the Forestry Commission to do this, and so we they gave us specifications. And they allowed us 40% open space, okay. which we which were lucky we're to get. Which we're walking through now, which, sort of which goes... we're walking through. Most people get 20%, but we wanted more open space because we thought, then you get more flowers uh-huh. in the long term.
0: So was it always the wildflowers for you that sort of... Uh,
1: well, the real big deal is the messy edges. Okay. It's the combination that's, that you know, particularly attracted us to make this habitat mosaic. And, um in time, we may coppice the trees, and mm-hmm. we're hoping to get woodland wildflowers established, okay. as well as the meadow uh, and we've done a little bit of translocation of soil, so under the alder and the birch where we came in, which uh-huh. are a bit bigger and now casting a bit more shade because they're speedy growers we have we've all we have started to get a bit of wood anemone growing. were they primroses. brought in or
0: did they arrive naturally or?
1: well, we just got a little bit of soil from not far away, okay, with was... the landowner's permission, uh-huh. and uh, you know, in the leaf litter are little bits of this and that.
0: Do you have a favourite? What's your favourite wildflower?
1: I think wood anemone is heaven when you see just a great carpet of it in the spring. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful.
0: My wildflower knowledge is pitiful. Oh. It's one of the things that I really want to get better at. My okay. mother came up to see...
1: So you know this one?
0: Um, that's a yellow one. That's, um... Uh, literally, I was being told what it was the other Bacon day. Bacon and eggs. That's the one.
1: Bird's foot trefoil. Uh-huh. Now, you'll know this one.
0: Yes, but you can tell me. That would be...
1: Red clover. <laughs> yeah, red clover. And this little yellow one, it's a bit like a dandelion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is a, But at this time of year, and it's not as big as a dandelion, that'll be a hawk bit.
0: So how many species do you think you've got?
1: Well, we, we do a... Um, a botanical survey each year and we have I think this year it was an average of about 17 species per square meter that does include the grasses
0: uh-huh.
1: um, and I think that's nudged up a bit from the year before or the year before that so we're we're just as the yellow rattle is making itself felt and just a few more species are nudging in and we may add a bit of seed and see if we can encourage a few more uh-huh. Um, The thing about Wood Meadow is, um, in 2014, this man called George Peterkin came to visit. And he saw what we were doing, trying to raise tomorrow's ancient woodland. And he said, you could identify what you're creating as Wood Meadow. And we thought about it. And we thought this seemed like, well, you know, ancient woodland is such an unattainable thing. Because you're really talking about 400 years away. Sure. The Wood Meadows seemed a bit more immediate and more of a tangible concept. So that's how that's developed and why we've changed our name really to being the Wood Meadow Trust. And George Peterkin became our patron, which is fantastic. He's such a knowledgeable, wonderful man. And he's written a a book about meadows for British Wildlife Publishing. Mm -hmm. And he's written, published a lot of things about woods. Um, in particular Lady Park wood recently, which is a wood he's been uh, monitoring for many years, which actually has been monitored for nearly 100 years, to see what the effect is of no management really
0: on a wood. Are we talking rewilding or uh, re- rewilding or are we talking...
1: I think it's after, well, during, over the time, they've stopped coppicing it mm-hmm. and just sort of nothing's happened. So the only thing that happens is, I, there's, I think there's some badges and things that go through it, but really, like, for example, the drought of 76 took a big toll on it and that was when quite a lot of trees
0: fell. So did it just remove diversity as a repercussion? Some or? years
1: later, uh, it did remove diversity. Really, not being managed, I think George would um, suggest, is not particularly beneficial to biodiversity. Our woods are better off if they're managed and actively appreciated and enjoyed and cut and Well, there was the
0: used. big big argument I was reading about. Management doesn't necessarily mean people. It means uh, an active animal habitat as well. But to try and get that installed and uh, self-sufficient is pretty hard if you're trying to do it from the bottom up.
1: Well, nature has a great way of, of its natural processes are a you know fantastic thing. And our um, chair, David Raphaeli,
0: mm-hmm.
1: he showed me a, a network, a, f- a food network. Of plants and insects on a meadow, and it's extraordinarily complicated. And in um, and pond life and things, they're incredibly complicated. All these interactions mm-hmm. between the plants and the insects and the microbes and the bacteria and you know all these things that go on, which are they just happen? Nature yeah, sorts out billions a, a very of years great deal.
0: of interaction that we're trying to kickstart in a matter of moments.
1: Yeah, but it, it's pretty good. It does. Um, You can help it along, definitely, sometimes.
0: What's the biggest surprise that you've encountered through this project so far?
1: Well, I think it's the delight, really, that people take in it. For example, this year we've set up a butterfly Mm transect, and there's about three or four um, people who've come together, and every week they walk this route that's been very carefully um, set up by a fantastic ecologist called Terry Crawford, and... They have, you know, they're, they're, there's a little WhatsApp group and arranging when the sun's going to shine sure. and when it's the right moment, and, and they've obviously all really enjoyed doing it, and and I love the way it's been, the the community, the community has been projects, expanding, and both the community of wildlife, the in invertebrate numbers have gone up to about nearly a thousand different mm. species. We're we're still totting up. We have a wonderful um, entomologist called Andrew Grayson who's been with us. For recording the invertebrates for a long time now five or six years which is a really an incredible amount of work and dedication
0: other than this one particular wood meadow yeah. what else would you like to aspire to
1: well we had a wildlife corridor workshop last year in the autumn with Sir, professor Sir John Lawton who wrote the Lawton report
0: mm-hmm. who I interviewed for this uh, Did few you? Years oh, back, yeah. more
1: bigger better joined and all that mm-hmm and he came and George Peterkin came and a whole range of people from local farmers and people who run you know, Yorkshire Water and Rivers Trusts and various different bodies around and I think off the back of that workshop they are trying locally to create a farmer cluster uh-huh. and are Initial idea was to try and create a link primarily around watercourses between the River Ouse and the River Derwent. There's about, we we lie in between, there's about six miles between the two.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And um, in fact, we're joining with Natural England because they're trying to, their ambition has been to get uh, inter- uh, connected a lot of habitat, meadows in particular, up the Derwent and then into York. Mm-hmm. So I think there's definitely a sense. That we need to get connected and make mosaics, but it is so complicated. I went to East Cottingwith last night, where they have lovely meadows and great seed um, can be had from their meadows occasionally. And um, there was a young solicitor who's got a whole um, machinery thing going, and he's cutting and baling all the verges in East Cottingwith, and there's a whole verges group with him that are getting this thing going uh-huh. um, a really really fantastic community enterprise and the sisters partnered with a guy who's apparently trying to make machinery to uh, collect all the arisings off the edges of the motorways okay so that's pretty amazing and maybe hopefully putting or... it into biomass you know digesters okay which I think in Holland they've been putting their grass cuttings the from their into. verges into digesters for years. I don't. I think Lincolnshire Wildlife have tried it and I haven't heard how they've got on. I've been trying to get in touch with them, actually. Do we think
0: there's something in the air at the moment? I mean, more people seem to be paying attention, more people are starting to get involved. There's an environmental agenda that seems to have more momentum than it has done over the last few decades.
1: Well, I think, I think the... Extinction Rebellion gives everybody a huge amount of hope because actually, unless young people get involved, if it's just the over 60 farmers, Mm -hmm. it's just, you know, it's too difficult to get far. But if there's real impetus and young people do get involved, it's fantastic. I did hear a tweet, though, yesterday, came through saying something like, the only wildlife that people really are familiar with is the fox. Mm -hmm. And 97% of young people know what a fox looks like, but only 40 odd f- percent know what a blue tit is, sure. and they can't really pick out a conker. And uh, you know, there's a really a tremendous amount of lack of knowledge. But it's not surprising if 70% of people live in the city. Why? Why would they come why across? Would they
0: need it? To? Well, it, it, I've mentioned it a number of times in this podcast before, but the Robin McFarlane Jackie Morris collaboration, Lost Words, yes, to try and yes get children reintegrated into the just the language of the natural world um, in order to be then enthused by it Um my question you mentioned Extinction Rebellion a few of them have recently been arrested um, okay. how far should we go if you need to change the social structure awareness like how far is too far even Greenpeace have become less confrontational mm. over the last few decades again well it's Is extinction rebellion filling that hole? Are they going to start? It's complicated,
1: and we can all do our things about plastics and what we eat and what we don't eat, and don't give up meat completely. We really, really need some grazing animals to Mm -hmm. manage. Seventy percent of the world is grasslands, and it needs munching. So we we don't want to give up meat completely. That would be not helpful. But
0: there's a kestrel over there.
1: Oh, there is. I think it comes down to the farmers you know they own 70% of the land they manage 70% of the land we have to work with the farmers and we have to make it possible for them to make a living mm-hmm. by managing the environment well and for example in East with I was hearing last night somebody's got a lovely meadow and they had a grant and they put some trees in say 30 years ago or something um, but they were told that their grassland money, HLS grassland money, was going to be cut because there were too many trees in it. So then they came along and they're doing what they've been kind of asked to do, and they're pulling down all the trees. Sure. Thirty years later, and it, it we have to work it out, and we have to, we have to find a way but of this working. Does that mean working. there's
0: less central management, more local control? less sort of dictatorial uh,
1: well they just have grant schemes and you know if farmers are paid to drain the land they'll people, drain it people and if will follow f- the money and if they're paid to you know take out the drains block them up I suppose they'll break the drains <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah. uh, you know why wouldn't you but uh I, I think the principles that have been um, developed now like the polluter pays biodiversity net gain
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think those are good ideas to underpin what we have to do. You know, if somebody wants to build some houses on a bit of land that's been sort of set aside, nice sort of boggy old corner or just bit of rough land or a field or a meadow, you know, they have to really properly um, make up for it. Sure. And you can't do it within that same bit of land because it's far too expensive to use the actual land for anything decent so they have to go and you know buy some more land somewhere else that can be made for equivalent good environmental
0: habitat or repurpose land like an old barley meadow and turn it into a wood meadow for example
1: yes why not (laughs) why not so (laughs) what what
0: would you like to do next with the Windbendage Trust what's your what's the next step what's the next goal other than obviously watching the trees grow and watching the diversity
1: virgin well, what we're really keen to do is encourage others to think about, as that person was taking their trees out. You know, whether it's a really good idea to take trees out. Mary Cowell's book that I've been reading, Curly Moon. She she puts it together very. There's so many conflicting interests, but I do think having woodland and meadow, having patches of wildflowers surrounded by the shrubs and trees a good cross-section of shrubs and trees mm-hmm. means that we have, you create a p- sequence of pollen and nectar that goes from the earliest months in the year right through and then the fruits of the autumn, through the meadow in the summer and the fruits in the autumn and the berries and everything. And I, I think it's a it's beautiful wood meadow and it's, it's got that lovely, lots and lots of dappled shade that everybody finds entrancing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great for biodiversity. We're recording, you know, we're monitoring the growing wildlife that's coming here. And I do think Woodmeadow is a, you know, pretty good option. So we want to, we want to, that's Achillia, Achillia. Do
0: Do you you have a favourite month in terms of things coming out to flower?
1: Oh, I always used to love the autumn because I could put my baggy jerseys on again. But I actually... (laughs) I find the flower. I mean, this is it so exciting in the spring? In fact, in the garden at home, I like it when the hamamelis comes out in January, and then the winter aconites. In the meadow, I suppose, well, it has to be June really, when everything's in flower mm-hmm. and the le- leaves are. I'm trees sorry, are I'm,
0: I'm a month late, or two months late now. Yeah, yeah all we've got is pretty <laughs> very I'm so cold comforted. and rainy August.
1: I'm so comforted by the, you know, all the birds for trefoil and everything coming out again. There's mallow here mm-hmm. and ladies bed straw and there's, you know, there's plenty of other things coming along. So there is food for more insects. And then we'll bring the sheep on. We have some Hebridean sheep locally. Oh, lovely. And they come and they graze the meadows and we move them with electric fencing, move them round the site.
0: Sure.
1: Then we and pop in a bit of seed under their feet and they'll push it in nicely.
0: Do you bring kids on to learn the different species? Like, do you have, cl- I mean, <laughs> I say kids, do you have classes for 35-year-old actors to come and learn more wildlife? We do,
1: actually, we do. We have, um, a couple of times a year, We have. we get a really good botanist who comes and gives classes on grasses or flowers or sedges or rushes, whatever we think would be, ring the changes a bit and sure. people would like to know. Um, what's this bit is this just a sitting Uh, this is the Bodger's Den those two boxes there are where the children come and they put their book bags or their you know little packs Uh
0: um,
1: while they go out and do their stuff and then they can come back in and sit here and eat and there's a fire pit in the middle they quite often learn how to make fire and two little rocket stoves if you put your pan on the top Uh it'll heat up very quickly
0: lovely I mean it's this thing I mean it's I look forward to coming back over the years and seeing how it all grows. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I love the way that nature changes anyway in its an natural state, but to then sort of to see something having been created actively and then yeah, to watch yeah. it grow year on year, to know that you've sort of made this meadow and that it is it is going hopefully going to be a legacy that long outlives you.
1: Well, once it's trees, it's very hard to take them down. Well, quite. So I think it's here to stay.
0: Good. I'm glad
1: I'm, I'm sure it's here to stay.
0: Is there any neighbouring yeah. land that you could stretch into and to expand onto?
1: Well, there's a possibility of a cafe in the fields opposite and actually we've made another pond behind because our pond is a bit small and a bit steep for mm-hmm. easy pond dipping. So we've made a rather bigger pond Lovely. with uh, gentler sides so it's easier for, safer for children to pond dip off. I
0: thought you were going to say easier for newts to get in and out <laughs> of rather than children.
1: Well, I think it's good for wildlife too actually, to have a very gently graduated slope and then there's a bit where we're going to put some seed along the back and make a walk around the field so we're just gently expanding a bit
0: slowly slowly all the best things happen slowly
1: yeah I think so just bit by bit and we really hope that some other people will in fact I know quite a few other people who are thinking about wood meadows or kind of starting to maybe put an extra uh, ramness into their hedges and think that they'll then they can get some brimstone butterflies and it's just little nudges, little nudges. can really pigeon feet. yeah you look at you just look at your fields in a slightly different way and you can even do it in your lawn you can put a bit of you know well there's f- there's a very
0: successful company called seedball that have sort of rocketed uh-huh. lately who are I think they want, like, the, the best environmental gift of the year or something, oh, where yeah. you can just sort of send people little tins which are full oh, yeah. of various different mixes, either a bee-friendly mix or a butterfly-friendly mix. Yeah. I think they had even a bat-friendly one I saw the other day. Uh-huh. But they, I mean, people want to have wildflowers again, which yes. is lovely.
1: Yeah, I'm quite surprised at how few people have actually put them into their lawns mm-hmm. when I talk to them. But I don't really understand it because... If you think about it, before 1950, or when they started making herbicides and fertilisers, everybody had clover in their lawn. It was yeah. just part, and it, and the, and then the lawn fed itself, didn't it? Because yeah. the clover fixes the nitrogen. And I think we just have to stop feeding and. Yes.
0: Fer, and as, as far, the further herbicide we can move animals. away from herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, the better. Um,
1: they're very, they're very um, carbon intensive mm-hmm. making too the making of all those things is really bad
0: So there are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast Um, The first one is if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be?
1: Oh, people have been talking to me about the maca off the west coast of Scotland I was thinking about it this morning, I think that's where I'd head. Why then? Well, just flowers in the UK, lovely wildflowers in the UK, what's not to like? Go and and discover them. I
0: can't remember what species it was. This is going to be a complete non-anecdote. I saw someone had just discovered one of the rarest British flowers flowering. This is a non-anecdote. I have nowhere to go with that (laughs) other than the fact that somebody found a flower. Um, I'll have to look that up. Um, (laughs) Second question. um, Should we colonise the moon?
1: Oh, well, I don't want to go there. Um, I like to view the moon, but I don't want to go there.
0: Did you see that the Chinese uh, managed to get a seedling growing on the dark side of the moon? Did they? their satellite. I don't quite know how they did it. A selection of mirrors sort of getting the sun to go around the back.
1: Oh, well.
0: Something to do, isn't it? How
1: clever. (laughs) How clever. They're ingenious.
0: (laughs) Um, And if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be?
1: Well, a unicorn leaps into my mind. (laughs) (laughs) They don't exist. Oh. Well, I guess some of these old um, grazing animals would be interesting. Some of the older than elk type things would be nice to see plodding around
0: so not the Irish elk so something because they were huge there's there's giant sort of who is it there was a cattle I think it's called I want to say an oryx but it's not an oryx but they were quite amazing huge horns and things
1: I was reading about two species of curlew Mm -hmm. in this book Curlew Moon that have recently become extinct and one's a slim curlew or something and I thought oh no that's really sad you
0: can bring that one back if you want Okay. Slim curlew it is. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> then
1: I'll go on my walk and go and find it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Ros, thank you very much indeed. Um, if people want thank to know you. more about the Meadow Trust, they can find you on your website, which yeah,
1: is. www.woodmeadowtrust.org.uk.
0: Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It has been almost a year since that conversation took place. It makes me wonder how the Wood Meadow has grown and flourished over that time. But a massive thank you still to Roz for walking around in the rain with me last August. I'm also delighted to say that since the UK government has loosened its grip on what one can and cannot do outside, the Wood Meadow is now once more open again to visitors, and I'm sure Roz would be delighted to see you all there. There's links to everything mentioned in this podcast on our website at treesacrowed.fm, including a list of all the books mentioned in this episode, including Mary Colwell's Curlew Moon, which Roz adored, and Dan Etherley's Invasive Aliens. Apologies to Dan for forgetting his surname during that recording. We're back next Monday with the final petal in our Wildflower Trilogy. I hope you can join us again then. All the very best from me. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy.
1: The oak and the ivy, oh